Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Brian Ballow. And I'm Nathan Connolly. Each week, Joanne, Brian, our colleague Ed Ayers, and I, all historians, take a topic from the news and try to see how we got here. Well, guys, I hope you're hungry because we're going to start today's show with dinner. And this is no ordinary meal because we're in New York City and it's 1881. We have fancy hors d'oeuvres, we have fine wines, and the main course, the piece de résistance, is a rich lobster salad. And get this, it's molded into the shape of a coffin. And there are exactly 13 crawfish around each coffin lobster salad. Sounds like a dinner to die for. Oh, oh. gosh. Kara <laughs> is a writer for Atlas Obscura. She says the 13 crawfish on each plate had special significance. As significant as the 13 men who tucked into their coffin lobster salad and crawfish that night. And then there are 13 candles and there's a big banner and in red letters it reads, Nos mora tituri te salutamus, which is Latin for we who are about to die salute you. This was the first ever meeting of the 13 Club. That sounds auspicious. The 13 Club? What the heck is that? (laughs) Well, it was a social club devoted to mocking superstitions. Uh And not surprisingly, given the name, especially those around the number 13. The specific superstition at the time was that if 13 people sit down to dine together, one of them is going to die within a year. Um, And this was based partially, I think, on the story of the Last Supper in which Jesus and his 12 disciples have dinner and then he dies soon after. The 13 Club was founded by a New Yorker named William Fowler, who was a very sociable kind of a guy. He owned a bar, he was always out with his friends, and he loved New York social clubs. These were extremely popular in the late 19th century. Men gathered at the city social clubs to eat and drink and hang out with friends, or to be with people who shared their interests in things like photography or politics. Fowler, appropriately enough, belonged to 13 different social clubs. (laughs) (laughs) He was particularly fond of the number 13 because he felt that it had been a good luck charm for him. He went to public school 13 in Manhattan. He um, was a builder briefly and he worked on 13 different buildings. Uh, He had survived 13 Civil War battles when he was in the Union Army. He thought the number was getting a bad rap. Turns out, plenty of New Yorkers agreed. Hundreds of people showed up for the club's 13-course dinners. Members dined under ladders and sat at tables covered in spilled salt and (laughs) open umbrellas. The 13 Club even spawned various sub-clubs, like the 13 Cycle Club, That one was for bike enthusiasts who were also against superstition. (laughs) Now, the 13 Club actually caught on outside of New York. So there was a branch in Chicago. There was a branch in Paris. There was a branch in London. A special women's only branch opened in Iowa. 
And there was an announcement of the women's only branch that said, this seems a bolder move than the famous men's 13 club, women being usually much more superstitious than their brothers. Oh, please. (laughs) So it's clearly an idea that speaks to all kinds of people across America. Joanne, what is the appeal of these clubs? In the late 19th century, superstition was losing its grip on American culture. It was an era of statistics and experts. But Jaimo says the 13 clubs were popular for another reason. They were fun. Any endeavor that is so committed to its joke, it survived for years and years and got hundreds of people in on it. It must have just been a really good and unique time. 13 clubs remained popular until the early 20th century. Jaimo says that by the 1920s, the only mention you'll really see of them is in members' obituaries. But even though they're long gone, the 13 clubs may have had a lasting impact in at least one respect. Members fought against all kinds of superstition, not just fears around the number 13. Another one of their pet causes was Friday, which had long been thought to be an unlucky day of the week. One BBC reporter recently was trying to figure out the origins of Friday the 13th as a bad luck day, and he traced it back to the 13 Club. His theory is that before the 13 Club, nobody associated Friday and 13 together, but since they were trying to rehabilitate the reputation of 13 and of Friday, they would do things like have an extra special dinner on Friday the 13th, and he thinks that they actually accidentally kind of made this chimerical bad luck monster that exists to this day. There's even a word for that bad luck monster, that fear of Friday the 13th. Frigatrisca decaphobia. Frigatrisca decaphobia. You say that, Nathan. Frigatrisca decaphobia. Yeah, I knew he was just going to whiz right through that. (laughs) So disappointing. So today on the show, we'll have some fun of our own with Friday the 13th. We have an assortment of stories connected to the number 13, from bar mitzvahs to the invention of the PG-13 movie rating and the missing 13th floor in so many Manhattan high-rises. But first, it turns out that the number 13 had a special importance in early American history— Just look at our flag with its 13 stripes. Those stripes represent the 13 colonies that rebelled against Britain and became our first 13 states. But here's the thing. For a few years, it looked like the new United States might only have 12 states. That 13th state wanted to go its own way. You mean they were going to have to redo all those flags, Joanne? (laughs) Such expense. (laughs) In 1787, delegates from across the country gathered in Philadelphia to revise their plan of government and ended up writing the Constitution. I remember this from my history textbook. People in that room, each state sending delegates. Yeah, Philadelphia. (laughs) It's a good time. Right. But 12 states sent representatives. The 13th state refused, much to the annoyance of those who did attend. Now, does anyone want to guess what state was the spoil sports state? I'm pretty sure it was in Hawaii. It was not Hawaii. Georgia. And not not Georgia, <laughs> definitely not Alaska. Come on, try again. Uh, Rhode Island. You got it. Or as it was known in the 1780s by some, Rogue Island. Oh. Patrick Conley, historian laureate of Rhode Island, 
says the founding fathers could barely contain their contempt. James Madison, for example, uh, blasted uh, Rhode Island, a uh, wicked little state, he called it. All sense of honor has been obliterated there. Even as a colony, Rhode Island had earned a reputation as being, shall we say, independent-minded. <laughs> it was especially militant in guaranteeing the separation of church and state in its charter. And Rhode Islanders were particularly democratic. Even under British rule, they managed to elect their own governor, legislature, and other officials. Pesky. <laughs> Definitely pesky, and not like in many other states. And as the revolution approached, Rhode Islanders were more than ready to fight. Rhode Island actually was in the vanguard of the movement towards independence. Probably the first major act of defiance against uh, the crown we burned a British custom ship to the waterline and uh, shot the commander in the groin in June of 1772, about a year and a half before the Boston Tea Party. But unfortunately, uh, Rhode Island doesn't have uh, very good publicists. And uh, <laughs> we are guilty sometimes in Rhode Island of hyperbole. <laughs> but here in Rhode Island, uh, we sometimes call it the first uh, blow for freedom. So... Clearly, they're proudly democratic and were the first in line to fight in the American Revolution. So I'm confused. Why would they refuse to send delegates to the Constitutional Convention? Well, good question, Nathan. Rhode Island was called a downright democracy in a pejorative way and uh, did not want to surrender sovereignty to a remote and what might be an impersonal central government. And things went downhill from there. When the Constitution was sent out to be ratified, Rhode Island put it up to a popular vote. The final vote on the Constitution was 2,714 against ratification, 238 in favor. So Rhode Island rejected the Constitution in a popular referendum by a vote of uh, about 11 uh, to 1. Uh, that democracy is troublesome. <laughs> and this is actually where the story gets really interesting. Because Rhode Island held out against signing the Constitution for nearly three years. By the end of 1789, it was the only state that hadn't ratified. Patrick Conley says Rhode Islanders had multiple objections to the Constitution. Number one, it did not contain a Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. In Rhode Island, religious liberty, very, very much rights-oriented, very much of an independent spirit. We can't ratify this document. We're creating a stronger central government without any specific protections for individual liberty. Also, the Constitution, in three different places, compromised with slavery. The Three-Fifths Compromise, Fugitive Slave Clause, and the moratorium on legislation banning the foreign slave trade for 20 years. And the Rhode Island Quakers had assumed a great deal of influence in Rhode Island politics at that time. They were the abolitionists of the of the late 18th century. And so they regarded the Constitution as a compromise with the slave power. And the very influential Quaker community opposed it for that purpose. Here's my next question then. What is then the reaction of the other states when they discover that Rhode Island has refused to ratify the Constitution? Well, they're very, very hostile. Let's put it that way. Uh, we were referred to as Rogues Island, the home of the dishonest debtor. Another group called Rhode Island, the quintessential example of villainy. Uh, the most eloquent censure 
uh, came from neighboring Connecticut in the form of a poem called The Anakiard, penned by a group of literati who styled themselves the Connecticut Wits. Hail, realm of rogues, renowned for fraud and guile, all hail, ye knaveries of yon little isle, the wiser race, the snares of law to shun, like Lot from Sodom, from Rhode Island run. <laughs> so in those days, political critics uh, played real hardball. So how did Rhode Island respond to all of these nasty epithets being tossed around? Well, the more the more the outsiders criticized them, I guess uh, the more some hardened against ratification. Mm. So uh, basically, uh, the name calling promoted, to use the term of contemporary term, resistance. So there's this fight going on. There's the epithets being tossed around. There's Rhode Island that feels even more opposed, given all of the insults. So. How do we get to a point that Rhode Island actually does ratify? When do they ratify and, and how do they get there? Well, they get there because they're alone. And uh, in the meantime, the government had organized and George Washington was inaugurated on April 30th of 1789. And uh, I wrote an essay once, uh, one of my books, and it was called The Republic of Rhode Island. Hmm. Because for all intents and purposes, Rhode Island was at that time an independent uh, state, independent country, really. So the founding fathers, so enraged at this, uh, uh, started to exert economic and political pressure on Rhode Island, threatening to um, put uh, tariffs on on goods uh, uh, that came from Rhode Island into the other uh, states and demanding that Rhode Island pay the balance on its Revolutionary War debt and making other threats and pressure. Okay, I'm actually very curious about this. So I have heard a story that uh, early in his presidency, George Washington made a northern tour uh, to sort of show himself as new president of the United States and that he didn't go to Rhode Island because at that point, Rhode Island was not part of the United States. Did that happen? Yes, that happened. He went to Connecticut and then went up uh, before he got as far east as Rhode Island. He turned uh, northward up into Massachusetts and he snubbed Rhode Island. <laughs> and uh, uh, the Rhode Island smarted under that snub. And of course, the fact that Washington was the president helped to, helped to uh, break down a little bit of the opposition to the Constitution. Uh, some Rhode Islanders said, well, if this system can produce a uh, a great uh, hero and a great patriot like George Washington, and maybe it's not quite as bad as as we as we feel it it could be. But above and beyond that, the Federalists in Rhode Island were getting fed up, and so you have internal pressure and pressure from Congress, and the combined pressures forced Rhode Island to take a vote on May the 29th of 1790. And Benjamin Bourne of Providence and Bristol made the motion to ratify at 5:20 p.m. Ironically, it was in the Second Baptist Church because the State House in Newport couldn't handle the crowd. So for all the separation of church and state, <laughs> we ratified the Constitution by a vote of 34 to 32, the narrowest of any state, in a Baptist meeting house. Wow. So Rhode Island finally becomes our 13th state, if only by a narrow margin, and some of its criticisms of the Constitution did get addressed, like, for example, the Bill of Rights, which helps protect religious liberties. But some other objections, like the protection of slavery, didn't get addressed. 
So in the end, do you think it was worth it for Rhode Island to put up that fight? You know, you can lambaste them for their position, but there's a very, very strong spirit of foot in America today. Individuals that want to take power uh, away and out of Washington, or as some call it, the swamp, and return it to the <laughs> states. Uh, there's an overriding concern for individual rights and individual liberties and freedom of expression and freedom of religion. And of course, the issue of slavery, uh, certainly no one would defend that today. So Rhode Island's position opposing those provisions in the Constitution uh, would uh, were commendable. So some people from Rhode Island say, that we should ask not why it took Rhode Island so long to join the union, but why it took the union so long to join Rhode Island. <laughs> well put. Patrick Conley is historian laureate of Rhode Island. We also heard from Kara Jaimo, a writer from Atlas Obscura. Joanne, you got us into this, but it seems to me Uh-oh. like if anybody had bad luck, it was the United States of America. I mean, what Rhode Island was saying... <laughs> was we shouldn't have slavery, we should have a Bill of Rights. What's wrong with that? Well, it's not so much that something's wrong with not wanting slavery and wanting a Bill of Rights. I think it's just the, at least in the time period, it has more to do with the way that they went about saying that. I mean, you're right that to some degree you could say, well, Rhode Island did the quote-unquote American thing by saying, we protest, we don't want to do this, we're holding back. But the other states also wanted a Bill of Rights. They just basically agreed to ratify the Constitution with the promise that a Bill of Rights would be t- attached later. Mm-hmm. So so some of this has to do with process. So I'm developing a theory here about <laughs> superstition <laughs> in 13. It seems to me like a lot of the people who get tagged with this 13 thing, they're kind of iconoclasts. They're they're kind of pushing against the grain. Certainly that 13 Club in New York, they were laughing at the notions of superstition. And Rhode Island gets tagged as Rogue Island, the 13th state, <laughs> because they want to do the right thing, basically. Yeah, but in, in both of those cases, I mean, look, so the, the, the 13 white male voters in Rhode Island who want to hold out, <laughs> right, they can do that. And they, and they can do it on very high-minded principles. Or, you know, the folks in these, you know, elite uh, clubs in New York City can laugh at those folks who, frankly, aren't on hard times, right, and having bad luck. Right. So that there's a lot you can do. Who from aren't earning point. $13 a month. <laughs> 13 cents a month. Exactly right. And also, I mean, to back us away from the number 13 for a second, the fact of the matter is, Rhode Island and Connecticut were both kind of slightly wacko states because Mm. they were formed as colonies by dissenters who left Massachusetts. So they started out Uh, as colonies full of people who had attitude, basically. Contrarians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's certainly true that, you know, democracy was troublesome in in, in this case, too, right? I mean, Rhode Island is going to continue to be a place that asks for sovereignty, that expects a kind of participation in democracy. That wouldn't be the case in a place like Georgia or Virginia, or they have to come up with all manner of really creative counting schemes relative to slaves. I mean, so the fact you don't have slaves means you can argue for democracy in a way 
way that other states might find threatening. So in that sense, too, I think the allure of democracy for Rhode Island is is far less of a danger than other states might consider. Hmm. You know, it's also worth saying that dissent is less effective when you're little in number or you're small. And Rhode Island is a little tiny state. Now, that said, I think it's worth saying as well that dissent is an American tradition, and it kind of doesn't matter if you're big or small. Dissent <laughs> was pretty much going to go on in this period and forever after. I vehemently disagree, Joanne. Every religious Jewish boy knows what the number 13 means. It's when they become a man. Historian Megan Dwyer Ryan says bar mitzvah literally means son of the commandment in Hebrew. So um, for boys, once they reach that age of maturity, it was time for them to become an adult and to become uh, a, a fully participating member of the faith. The main event at a bar mitzvah, or a bat mitzvah, the ceremony for 13-year-old girls, is a reading from the Torah, which, by the way, is sung, not read. Oh, and did I mention it's got to be done in Hebrew? Now, I know you, Brian. You've got a line or two rattling around upstairs still. Give us a taste. I know you, Nathan. You always hit my sore spots, and this is one of them. This is something I brought up with our guest. Okay, this I gotta hear. I went to Hebrew school three times a week for at least three years, maybe four, and the only word of Hebrew I know is shalom. (laughs) Do kids actually learn Hebrew now when they go to Hebrew school? You know, that's a great question. I think some do, but I think most are just, you know, they they learn the bare minimum and, you know, just to get through the bar mitzvah ceremony and then they kind of forget it. (laughs) So what's up with that? I mean, right? How can we be sending generations of kids to thousands of hours of Hebrew school and the only word that all of us know is shalom? Dwyer Ryan worked as an archivist for nearly a decade at a historic Boston synagogue called Temple Israel. It's the largest Reformed congregation in New England. It was founded in 1854 by German-speaking Jews. And listening to Dwyer Ryan describe religious education for Jewish kids in the mid-19th century, I realized that I actually got off pretty easy. Boys would have bar mitzvah training in the home of the Hazan at the time, or the reader, And uh, both boys and girls attended religious school classes at the synagogue itself about three days a week. And they learned everything from um, uh, Hebrew and, uh, uh, you know, scripture, Jewish history, and, um, you know, various other kinds of topics. And they learned those uh, topics both in German and in English. But congregants at Temple Israel worried that their American-born kids would resent and even reject these old-world traditions. They were even more afraid that kids would reject Judaism altogether. So, like other Reformed synagogues in the U.S., they decided to Americanize some of their religious practices. They had sermons in English. They installed an organ. 
gasp, created a choir, and let men and women sit side by side rather than in separate sections. In 1874, Temple Israel hired a rabbi named Solomon Schindler, who made even more changes. And one of those measures was the discontinuation of bar mitzvah for boys. And instead— Hold on. What... I thought the bar mitzvah was such a big deal. How, how, <laughs> how could he—isn't that touching the 13th rail? It is to for for many Jews at the time. It it was um, you know it was a very controversial issue, and in fact, uh, the board of trustees was not too happy with Schindler when he made this executive decision to discontinue bar mitzvah. But um, they went along with it. Um, you know, they sort of voiced their huh. objections and then just kind of said, "Okay, well, go on. You know, continue." So it's not so wait, that uh, wait, Megan, Megan, yes. who was the first kid that got denied a bar mitzvah? <laughs> I'm not sure, really. Um, what they did instead was they adopted a confirmation service. And oh, I see. this was a practice that was open to both boys and girls. And it was kind of in line with other reform measures at the time. You know, many Jews decided that the way to Americanize was to adopt some, I guess you could call them Protestant kind of practices. And confirmation uh -huh. was one of those practices. And I just have to ask a little bit about this confirmation because I was bar mitzvahed and I had to do the Haftorah. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard to learn <laughs> how to chant that passage from the Torah in Hebrew. Sure. With all of those very seriously observing Jewish people around me. Was there anything like that in the confirmation? I just want to make sure that these kids weren't getting off easy. <laughs> yeah, to disappoint you, yes, they were getting off easy. <laughs> uh, you Particularly see? in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, one of the reasons why um, uh, you know, the, the congregation adopted confirmation was that they realized um, you know, fewer, fewer students, fewer children were learning Hebrew. Um, it wasn't considered... Uh, as important, particularly for Reformed Jews. Um, in fact, in the classical Reform period, um, you know, which had its height, again, late 19th, early 20th century, um, you know, many other branches of Judaism considered Reformed Jews to be Jews in name only. Um, and Temple Israel, you know, kind of adopted some of those practices that were questionable, to say the least, such as um, having services on Sundays as opposed to uh, Saturdays. <laughs> yes, that um, sounds somewhat questionable. <laughs> yeah. So when did they get back to doing bar mitzvahs, and why did that come about? Well, it, in many ways, uh, you know, they were among the wealthiest uh, Jews in the city, you know, the most Americanized Jews. They were the leaders in many ways. Um, you know, they were the German Jewish synagogue. But by the, uh, you know, into the 20s, 30s, and into the 40s, the membership was changing slightly. You had, uh, you know, Jews of Eastern European descent and more traditional backgrounds uh, joining the synagogue. Um, and in fact, one of the things that made Temple Israel sort of change back, um, you know, sort of the, the pendulum swinging back the other way was the hiring of Rabbi Joshua Loth Liebman. And so he brought back a lot of sort of uh, uh, traditions that were considered, uh, you know, more conservative in nature. So things like having, an, uh, uh, you know, a Friday evening Shabbat service, you know, he got rid of the Sunday service. Um, 
having candles um, at services and bringing back the bar mitzvah. So in 1941, um, you know, bar mitzvah was again celebrated um, at Temple Israel. And um, he also, the previous year, made it mandatory for all students to learn Hebrew again. So, um, you know, so, so those practices were, were back. And again, it, it was sort of in keeping with, with you know, trends in Reform Judaism. Um, and uh, uh, what was interesting, too, was um, they continued to perform the uh, confirmation service. Um, they kind of saw it as, you know, bar mitzvah would happen at age 13. Kids would keep going to school. You know, it was a way to sort of keep them going to, um, you know, to learn more about their faith. And then right. at age 16, they would have their confirmation service. Now, this is a period, if I understand correctly, that... Uh, girls started having bat mitzvahs in greater numbers. How does that square with the rabbi's emphasis on tradition? Yes. Or was it not the case <laughs> at Temple Israel? Temple Israel was actually fairly late in adopting the bat mitzvah ceremony. Um, the first bat mitzvah wasn't uh, or didn't happen until 1956, and there were uh -huh. three that year, whereas the first bat mitzvah in the United States occurred in 1922. So, uh, you know, so for Temple Israel, um, and, and by that point, it was just kind of seen as time. You know, it wasn't necessarily that it was controversial by that point. You know, girls just kind of, you know, they started doing it, and there really wasn't that much controversy by that point. I'm guessing the 13-year-olds and adults have a, a very different definition of what it means to be 13. Very much so. Um, yeah, for kids, I think they kind of go throughout their religious education, you know, preparing for and thinking about the bar bat mitzvah and thinking, oh, great, now I'm done. But for, you know, the rabbis, for the religious educators, they're thinking, nope, nope, this is just the beginning. So bar mitzvah, at least today, is less about becoming an adult and more about marking a very important transition. Yes, I'd say so. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it certainly, I don't think anybody would, would call a 13-year-old an adult. Um, they would. They would, yes, they would. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and I think, you know, these, these are kids, and for them, I think it's an important milestone, but it also means a really great party. <laughs> Megan, I have to tell you that when I was bar mitzvahed for a boy, the pen and pencil set was <laughs> very much the thing. What is the quintessential bar or bat mitzvah gift these days? I'd have to say money <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Always in style. I'm sure they rush out and buy a pen and pencil set. Oh, of course, yes. <laughs> or maybe a computer or an iPad. <laughs> <laughs> Megan Dwyer Ryan is co-author with Susan Porter and Lisa Fagan Davis of Becoming American Jews, Temple Israel of Boston. You know, Nathan, Brian, it's really interesting to me that in that last piece, I learned something that I feel kind of goofy for not knowing, <laughs> I will confess. So I had a bat mitzvah. I knew what that was all about. But then I stayed and I went on and was you confirmed. You stayed? I know. I'm a nut. Right? <laughs> I always wondered I about those kids that stayed. I mean, that was yeah, like was the jailbreak kids. once you were done with your bat mitzvah, <laughs> bar mitzvah. Did you not get the memo? 
I was that kid. <laughs> I was the one who stayed. No, I, I was, I enjoyed the whole process of learning. And I just, I guess I didn't have much of a background in Judaism before that point. So I think I was kind of soaking in all of this information. So I stuck around, but I never understood why it was called confirmation. It always felt to me like something that should happen at a church. And in a sense, <laughs> that last piece basically said, yeah. That's exactly right. I had a confirmation as a Catholic. And, you know, basically, you know, you already have the big milestone when you have Holy Communion when you're much younger. So you get to have the Eucharist and the, you know, the sacramental wine. And that's always the big deal. Can I participate in the procession? The confirmation was just kind of like, okay, now I have more obligations. I have to show up in lecture on Sunday as opposed to just being an altar boy, you know? So for me, as I'm sure for a lot of folks, you know, getting confirmed at 13 is not nearly as significant as getting your driver's license at 16 or being allowed to vote when you're 18 and certainly not being allowed to drink alcohol when you're 21. So, you know, it gets lost in the sea of other milestones in adolescence. So maybe that's because there's not a specific number like 13, for instance, associated with it. Probably. I think that's that's certainly some of it. Um, I actually remember being more excited about being PG-13 legal than having the confirmation. (laughs) (laughs) I think that the same holds true for my confirmation, right? I mean, there's no number associated with it, but (laughs) bat mitzvah and bar mitzvah are like these really meaningful moments when it's a big deal. Like certainly my parents, actually my parents never went to synagogue until I was 12. And then suddenly it was like, oh my God, we got to go to temple. She's got to have a bat mitzvah. Yeah. And I have to share with you guys, particularly Brian, because of your confession about only knowing the word shalom, Hmm. which I think is probably true for any Jew. It is a two syllable word. I just want to point out. I have several syllables and I've never had a reason to do this, to actually offer the world my Hebrew sentence? Hit, hit us I with have it. a whole sentence. Hit us with I, it, Joanne. Okay, here it is. Ani ochevet l'shevet bevet cafe b'motza e Shabbat, which means I like to hang out in cafes on Saturday nights. <laughs> that literally, I took conversational Hebrew, and that is the only sentence I remember. <laughs> And, and just to be clear, that's actually a bad thing, right? To be hanging out on the Sabbath or no? Well, no. Saturday night's okay. Friday night, not so good. Okay, but, got it. Yeah. <laughs> At age 13, Nathan, it's a bad thing. <laughs> that's true. Due to strong language and simulated teen partying, the following segment has been rated PG-13. Did you let Nathan party again? (laughs) You might ask why 13, and I'll tell you it's arbitrary. This is film historian John Lewis. We asked him about the origins of PG-13 and why 13-year-olds are considered mature enough to see edgy content. Why it became PG-13 is anybody's guess. Um, I guess it's sort of halfway between 10 and 16. (laughs) And it's also, maybe it's like bar mitzvah age. I really don't know. Lewis says Hollywood Studios introduced the PG-13 movie rating for a very specific reason, to boost the bottom line. Before 1968, you have a very strict production code, you know, written by by a Jesuit priest in 1930 uh, named Father Daniel Lord. I mean, you couldn't Invent a name like that. Good, good name. And yeah, yeah. And he, um, and it was explicit, you know, what you could and couldn't do. 
You couldn't show a criminal beating a cop or unmarried couples in bed, for example. But by the 1960s, young people were bored by the bland, buttoned-down offerings of Hollywood studios. So cinema's struggling, and then you've got these foreign imports coming in, and you have a generation of very well-educated young people in America who are, you know, anxiously talking about the next Truffaut or Godard film and aren't the slightest bit interested in seeing a studio movie. Hollywood needed to find a way to attract those young people without alienating more conservative audience members. Lewis says this tension was apparent in the 1966 movie adaptation of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. The content of the film was... was Intense. It's intense. And it's also not suitable and it's not even interesting to anyone under 18. Um, <laughs> and there were a couple of quotes. There's a, there's a line in the, in the play, uh, Hump the Hostess. And then the word screw is used um, not in a carpenter's context. In other words, for that time, pretty racy stuff. But Jack Valenti, the new president of the Motion Picture Association of America, figured out how to get Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf into theaters. Part of the compromise was the first implementation of an M rating. Um, and the film was a box office success despite a restriction. And this was further encouragement for developing a, um, a new system based on the concept of age-based categories. The M rating stood for mature audiences, but all ages were permitted. The first rating system also included G, appropriate for all ages, R, or restricted, no one under 16 allowed without an adult, and, of course, X, for adults only. Eventually, M became PG, for parental guidance. Lewis says the creation of the rating system was a brilliant marketing move. It allowed Hollywood filmmakers to push the boundaries in terms of sex and violence. And with ratings, the public, not some Hollywood censor, got to decide whether or not a film was appropriate for children. Valenti's basically saying that it's not the movie business's position to tell parents how to parent. The rating system worked just fine for a while. But by the 1980s, PG films like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, where a guy's heart is ripped out of his chest, made some parents uncomfortable. That was my movie right there. <laughs> well, yeah, well, it wasn't everybody's movie because some parents felt that the space between PG and R had become a mile wide. So in 1984, America's first movie with a PG-13 rating hit the theaters. It was a movie called Red Dawn. And, um, you know, it's this sort of lunatic right-wing fantasy film. <laughs> that's right. been for, remade. For those, for those of our many listeners who have not seen Red Dawn, this is about Cuban, Marxist, Russian proxies invade the United States. That's right. And, and we're and saved by all Patrick Swayze. And, and find all the guns in the United States because overzealous American bureaucrats have forced Americans to register their names if they own guns. Right. So they know right where to go. Right. And our only hope is a group of teenagers headed by uh, the then charismatic movie star Patrick Swayze, who leads a rebellion against the invasion. And the cast was appealing to teenagers. But if you're going to tell teenagers, if you give it an R rating, that they can't go see it, or they can't go see it unless they go with their parents, and no 16-year-old wants to see anything with their parents, 
uh, you're basically killing the film's box office. It's, it's driven by the market. There are certain films that so depend on an adolescent audience that they can't get an R rating and make money. I see. So the paradigmatic PG-13 films are films that could possibly get an R, but couldn't possibly succeed at the box office if indeed it got that. So something like Twilight, Hunger Games, a superhero film that maybe has some kind of difficult content. They all have plenty of violence. Those are the films that PG-13 is, is designed to contain. Are you listening, all you 11-year-olds? <laughs> it's also a guarantee of a certain kind of appealing content, that if you're a 12-year-old and you've found some of the movies you've seen recently a bit tame for your tastes, exactly. the PG-13 is a description or descriptor that sort of guarantees a certain kind of content. Um, so... Would you change this system? If I worked in the industry, I wouldn't, no. Um, I mean, it's capricious. It's inequitable in some ways. Um, <laughs> by and large, the the raters, the, there are all these acronyms. They're called CARA, uh, the Classification and Ratings Administration. They're um, the board, this sort of anonymous committee of middle-aged parents. I and mean, are these just re civilians? Do these these folks have other day jobs and No, I think I think you could make a living doing this, yeah. Really? Yeah. Did you ever find out who some of these people were? Has anybody ever found well, out? Well, there's a movie um called This Film's Not Yet Rated, um which was directed by Kirby Dick, um a terrific documentary filmmaker. <laughs> I'm actually in the movie too, so you can cool. actually see me in the movie. Um, and he outed, um, he hired private detectives and outed um, a number of the raiders, they're called raiders. Um, and and it turned out they actually weren't what they were supposed to be, that they had <laughs> by they, then grown, They didn't even have kids. They didn't even have Well, kids. they had grown kids, you know, so the kids were already out of the house. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a dreary job. I don't, <laughs> I mean, if yes. you could imagine. Um, no, if you I talk, cannot imagine. Yeah. If you talk to anybody who reviews films for a living, like at a newspaper, they'll tell you it's like the worst job. Because, you know, you, you're seeing 300 movies a year and, you know, 285 of them are terrible. John Lewis is a professor of film studies at Oregon State University and the author of Hollywood vs. Hardcore, How the Struggle Over Censorship Created the Modern Film Industry. We started the show by talking about the 13 Club, which made fun of superstitions. Even so, I think it's safe to say that the number 13 and Friday the 13th are still associated with bad luck. So just looking back at America's history, I mean, is it worth being so fearful of the number 13? I mean, there's a lot, a lot of good things that have happened. I, mean, I think, you know, for instance, Brian, you and I from Miami can talk about Dan Marino having a great, <laughs> you know, career as a number 13. But yes, a terrific <laughs> quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, at least until he tried to run, Nathan. That's right. Um, but, you know, what about, you know, thinking through, like, you know, the 13th president, Millard Fillmore? I mean, is there a way that we can maybe rehabilitate <laughs> his... <laughs> uh... I don't know, the Fillmore factor, I think uh, <laughs> being the 13th president did not help him much. Right. I mean, he's actually, you know, Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan come after him and they're much worse. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and Andrew Johnson. I don't know. Maybe this, this all could be really blown out of proportion, right? Well, look, let's make this personal. How many of you have changed your behavior because of 13? Mm. The, the way that Friday the 13th, I would say, appears on my radar screen would be not that I do anything different about that day, but if something bad happens on a Friday the 13th, my response is, oh, yeah, well, it's Friday the 13th. Right. So, yeah, well, that's somehow. So maybe over hundreds of years, maybe those oh, it must be Friday the 13th, kind of gathers historical momentum. So it's the story we can map on to bad happenings after the fact. Exactly. Or do we, rather than blaming this on any luck or lack of luck inherent in the number 13, do we need to fear it because other people act goofy (laughs) 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 on things surrounding the number 13? You know, in other words, are we really more talking about the impact of superstition Mm -hmm. and the way that we have to accommodate for that? There's some figure about, you know, there being some 630 buildings in New York City that are built 13 floors or higher. And of that number, less than 10% actually have a designated 13th floor. That's remarkable, (laughs) right? I mean, that is literally built into steel and concrete, the superstition. Well, and it's goofy too, right? Because they are living on the 13th floor if they're on the 14th floor. Do not tell them that, Joey. (laughs) I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. But but so it's about the number, right? It's not even about the floor. It's just about the number. Right. Because of money. Because of money. (laughs) No, that's right. I mean, let's put that out on the table too, right? Because people aren't going to buy something associated with the 13th floor or the 13th row of And because of the market, even though I have no problem living on the 13th floor, I would avoid it because it would hurt the resale value, knowing that somebody else out there might not buy my condo because it's on the 13th floor. Right, 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 right. Right. And and some of this stuff has indeed been tracked. I mean, you have, you know, these research centers that study – consumer behavior on Friday the 13th, and according to one study from 2004, almost a billion dollars in revenue gets lost on Friday the 13th simply by people changing their habits to avoid bad luck. You can get a discount from wedding venues if you want to have your ceremony (laughs) on Friday the 13th. Especially if you hold it on the 13th floor. (laughs) Exactly. I I feel like I've totally missed out on a discount factor. Right, right, right. But I guess it's just another reminder. If, If we can't go back and look at the sources and say, there's definitely bad luck around the 13th of this and the 13th of that. If you can't be very concrete, it doesn't mean that, in fact, people aren't thinking about history with this number or thinking about history in terms of luck. And I'm always fascinated by these folk understandings of the past that you can somehow you know, track bad things having happened on this particular date on the calendar that you may want to circle enough to want to change your behavior or that Americans in general think that they can simply control against future risk by staying indoors on a day like Friday the 13th. Yeah. I mean, it, it actually is historical thinking, strangely enough. And it's it's historical thinking and is the word you just used, right? And it's about control. Right. It's about somehow or other wanting to come up with a theory that enables you to respond to events or prevent things from happening by doing the right things and somehow controlling randomness. So you randomly assign meaning mm-hmm. to this number and mm-hmm. that gives you a way to act according to some mm-hmm. logic. And and I still believe that Friday the 13th is kind of a collective reminder to us all that blank 
happens. <laughs> and, you know, better that it should all happen on one day on than one day, spread right. spread across the entire year. <laughs> yeah, it saddens me to, to, to share with both of you that, that bad luck may be more frequent than we think. The Gregorian calendar has one day that appears more frequently above all others, and that's Friday the 13th. <laughs> okay, that's weird. <laughs> that's, that's just weird. That's going to do it for today. But you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your burning history questions. We know you've got some. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email at Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And feel free to review the new show in the iTunes Store. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Robin Blue, Emma Gregg, Sequoia Carrillo, Anjali Bishash, Courtney Spagna, and Aaron Teeling. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Poddington Bear, Ketza, and Jazar. And thanks, as always, to the Johns Hopkins University Studio in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities. <laughs>